Hello, everyone. Tim K here, host of the Veterans Project podcast, founder of the Veterans Project and the Caregiver Project as well. If I sound a bit stuffed up in the intro, I apologize, but I am on the road as always out near Camp Lejeune uh, in Jacksonville, North Carolina. We are doing a series of projects and podcasts uh, out this way. We had an incredible meetup with our friends at Heart Support on the road, Blake the president of the Veterans Project and I headed out to Pennsylvania to meet up with Jake Lurs, uh, who founded Heart Support. He's also the lead singer of a little band called August Burns Red. And we are talking about the mental health space. And we had an incredible meetup with them. And uh, Rudy Reyes and Donald McAllister, Nate Boyer, and our whole Veterans Project coalition with Heart Support uh, is a go and we've started doing some incredible things. Just wanted to thank them for their absolutely wonderful support of the project. We look forward to this partnership going into the future. It's a powerful one for sure. Stay tuned for that. This particular episode of the Veterans Project podcast, I would say, is a uniquely heartwarming piece in that it's about a special relationship between a man and man's best friend. Now, for those of you out there who are dog people, and that should be all of you, You know just how special a relationship with your pup can be, but imagine that intensified times, oh, probably a thousand. The setting is one of the most volatile on the entire planet, the Sangin district of Helmand Province, Afghanistan. It's 2011, and 26-year-old Anthony Marquez is assigned to 1st Battalion, 5th Marines. His assignment is a bit unique in that his closest fellow Marine just so happens to walk on four legs. Marquez is a Marine Corps dog handler, a specially designated position within his infantry unit, and his battle buddy's name is Allie, an improvised explosive device sniffing Labrador retriever. From April to October, Anthony and Allie are thicker than thieves, forging a special bond through their time together in combat. Now imagine forming that unique relationship in such an absolutely harrowing environment, and then you get back to the States and they take your best friend away from you. Sounds pretty terrible. Now, if you ask Anthony, and I believe he says it in the interview, he never thought he'd see Allie again. But that's obviously not the end of the story. I'll leave you there to sit with that cliffhanger, but I also can't neglect how Anthony and I met. It was a very special day for the Caregiver Project in our coverage of our first Gold Star family, the family of Lance Corporal John Farias, who was tragically killed in Afghanistan. One of his one five brethren was Anthony, and he just so happened to be making a special delivery on the day I was set to meet the Farias family at Fort Sam Houston. It was Marquez's fourth battlefield cross-carving delivery to a family of an Armed Forces member killed in action. He didn't just deliver the carving, he also produced the carving. When Anthony was looking for a way to give back to the families of the fallen after he left the Marine Corps, he decided he wanted to start delivering handmade memorials. Now, you may not know a lot about chainsaw sculpting. Probably most of you don't. I didn't know anything about it until I met him. There's just a bit of a learning curve there. But I'll let Anthony tell you the rest of that story as well. I guess that's two cliffhangers. Finally, it's imperative that I thank Anthony because talking to him really took me back to why we started the Caregiver Project. So there's a good bit of discussion about that in the podcast. As usual, I've rambled on more than enough, though. Let's leave the rest to the Marine. Here he is, the one and only, Anthony Marquez. 
The Veterans Project is a comprehensive essay capturing the legacies of our warfighters, caregivers, and civilians who have stepped forward in defense of our patriotic principles in an effort to capture their stories and to never forget the staggering sacrifices of our nation's finest. This is the Veterans Project Podcast, where our legacies are the mission. Here's your host, Tim Kay. Welcome to the Veterans Project Podcast. My name is Tim Kay. I'm here, your host as always, uh, fortunately or unfortunately. <laughs> We've got Anthony Marquez, United States Marine Corps veteran, Afghanistan, right? Yeah. Okay, didn't do Iraq. Uh, no. No. Okay. What what gear did you get in, Anthony? Uh, well, I did the uh the debt, so I actually enlisted in 06, and then I went to boot camp in 07. Okay, awesome. After my senior year. Hmm. Senior year, that's fun. <laughs> yeah, I did that whole uh, split option program, so I joined in like I was 17. Yeah. Was back in 05, and then I went to basic training. I came back, and then I did my AIT, which oh, okay. advanced individual training, like the year later. So, got to have a little fun in my senior year, but uh. I was, you know, I went to AIT right after that and then joined my unit and uh, had fun after that. <laughs> <laughs> so, Anthony, tell us a little bit about, you know, what kind of, you know, your life and growing up here. And I, I'm guessing you grew up here. Oh, uh, yeah. Just a few miles up from where we live now. Okay. And this is Owasso, right? Uh, yeah. Owasso, Oklahoma. Dude, I pronounced it right. I'm so <laughs> happy. Yes. Tell us a little bit about life growing up and what that was like for you as, as a youngster. What do you remember about your parents and, and growing up in Owasso? Growing up, it used to be kind of a small town, but now it's it's kind of uh, grown in the last 20 years. Come from a sort of a big family. I got uh, four other siblings, two brothers and two sisters. I'm the second from the youngest. I was always outside working, helping my dad. Uh, kind of called me like a grease monkey growing up. <laughs> so I was always getting in dirty. and. Um, so that's probably just, why you're okay with the chainsaw now. <laughs> yeah, just kind of doesn't bother me. Yeah. Because when you do the carving, you're covered in dust. So what do you, your dad owns a waste management company. Yeah, it's okay. called uh, Marquez Trash Service. And it's it was actually started by his mother, uh, my grandma, who passed away in 95. Um, but her... And another guy started it in the 70s, and then when it got so big, then the business split up between the three brothers. So my dad and my two uncles, they all got a piece of the, the business, and then over the last 40 years, the three of them just grew it themselves, like grew their own side of uh, their business. So Okay, that's awesome. So, the, so are those businesses disconnected from this one? Uh, yeah, so it's Mark has trash service, and then Nelson's rural trash, and then Robert's rural refuse. Oh wow, that's so awesome. Robert was my uncle Robert who actually passed away, but yeah. Okay. So, but his his son-in-law and my cousin run that side of it. Gotcha. So, so what do you think about you know you you started doing this work pretty young with your dad? Yeah, I out? started hauling trash with my uncle Robert when I was eleven years old. Do you think there was something about the humility you have to you know go through that with and the hard work that you know kind of pushed you towards the core? I would probably say yeah, but I think the the biggest influence was my uncle, and he's the one I started working for at such a, such a young age. But he was in the Marine Corps in the early eighties, okay. And uh, he was a he was with Third Tank Battalion, I okay. Believe. Ever since I was a kid, ever since I can remember, even before I started working, um, I was always you know like kids do playing army or whatever you want to call it, and I always knew that my uncle Robert was in the Marine Corps, and I was like, I want to do that, so. <laughs> Kind of, that's where it led me. Did he talk to you about his service and kind of what that meant to him? Yeah, he mentioned it here and there, but I mean, he 
he was in Okinawa, stationed in Okinawa for, I think, two years, and he would always tell us some stories and whatnot, and that's where I have the thing. I have a tattoo on my leg in memory of him, but he'd always call us maggots. <laughs> so I have a, and he was big into uh, military vehicles and, you know, stuff like that, and so I actually have a, a maggot driving a, a military Jeep <laughs> on my leg. That's a memorial piece for him, it's probably... I'm probably the only person in the world that has a maggot tattoo on their leg. Hey, man, at least it's original, right? Yeah, <laughs> it looks like a kind of a rat fink kind of thing. But oh, that's cool. So, what what do you remember about first making that decision to to join the corps in high school? As the time came closer to actually graduating and taking that step, I never really nothing else interested me yeah. more than wanting to serve because. Both my grandfather served in the army. Uh, my actually, my my grandpa Manuel, he's still alive. He lives four miles up the street. He uh, he was in World War II and Korea. Wow. And uh, why have we not done a project on him? We probably need know. to. <laughs> yeah. And he was a tanker, and then he was claustrophobic, so they kicked him out of tanks and put him in an infantry battalion. Oh, geez. Wow. Yeah, he lives just four miles up the street here. Wow. That's amazing, man. You know how rare that is to like yeah. have that living with you, you know, that memory right there. That's incredible. I said my uncle was the only one in the Marine Corps, but my grandfathers both served in the Army and then had some other people that served in Vietnam, cousins and stuff like that. And then I had a cousin who was in the Desert Storm era. I'm the only one from my family in the current conflicts that has served. So it just came from... It was my turn to do what they did in the past. Mm, that makes sense. So service kind of always surrounded you, and it yeah. was always there in the environment. That's cool. So what do you remember about, did you go to Paris Island, or did you go to MCRD? Oh, MCRD. Okay, so you're a Hollywood Marine. Yeah. <laughs> so what do you remember about boot camp and going through that? Was, that? was that tough for you, or did you feel ready and pretty prepared for it? I remember seeing the planes land every day and wishing I was on one, <laughs> taking <laughs> off. Because it's right there. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So probably every everybody, every recruit going through boot camp and MCRDs just wants to run across that runway and get on a plane. <laughs> <laughs> Growing up, I was kind of a heavyset kid. And then, I mean, when I went into the Marine Corps, I wasn't, I was somewhat skinny, you know, because I was doing the, that depth program and you'd have to do pulley functions once a month. And I don't know, they, they say it's getting you ready for boot camp, but you only do it once a month. So what's, what, you know, is it really helping? I mean, it kind of, I guess it kind of shows you what you're going to be doing mm -hmm. full time. I don't know. But, um, going into boot camp, I can never do 20 pull-ups. And then when I, uh, when I went to boot camp, and that you do the initial strength test, they call it the IST. And, uh, I got 20 pull-ups. And then from there on throughout my whole Marine Corps time, I always got 20 from from then on. So thinking back, it wasn't a death march. You know what I mean? It wasn't like, br it, it was hard, yeah. But the mental part was probably the hardest. And that's what they try to do. They try to break it down to, you know, right. to build you back up. So so when you got out, did you go, when you made it through boot camp, did you go straight to 1-5? I had a five-year contract. And my first three years, I was with security forces. After Graduating boot camp, came home for 10 days, and then went back to Pendleton, where you go through SOI, School of Infantry. From there, I went to Chesapeake, Virginia, for the BSG school, which is like the basic security guard school. Okay. All the line companies hate security forces, guys, because... Yeah. They, yeah so. I know. <laughs> <laughs> so, but... 
Don't pull me over. Yeah. <laughs> they, they, I don't know. Cause a lot of guys, a lot of guys come from security forces. They already like pick up corporal, which I already picked up corporal when I was in security forces. And then when you go to a line platoon, you have all these guys that have done these deployments already and they've already been overseas to like Iraq or Afghanistan. And then you're coming in and you're a corporal and they're like, they look down on you like, because you haven't deployed. Like you've been skipping out on what have you been doing over, you know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, totally. But I mean, and I don't care. Anytime you leave the country with security forces, I deployed twice with them. And I and, and people ask me, they're like, how many deployments did you do? And I say, well, I did two non-combat and one combat. Yeah. Like, it was still a deployment. Those are still deployments. They're just not combat deployments. They're like going on a mew, you know what I mean? Like, that's still, you're still leaving the country and going to do something. And with security forces, your main thing, well... What we did was uh, we did a little small stint in Cuba, and all you do is stand post, and that that sucks because yeah. you're like a week on, a week off, and on your week on, all you're doing is standing post for your, your eight hours on, eight hours off, and then you have like eight hours of sleep. We did the Cuba deployment, and I was with 2F5 at the time, and then came back, and I went to 1F3. It was second fast, 2F5, mm-hmm. and, and that was in Yorktown, Virginia, and then I came back, and then I went to 1F3, which was at a little base I think, if I remember right, it was called Camp Adam or Camp Allen. And it was, like, right up the street from Norfolk. Okay. And it was it was just, like, a really dinky base with, like, a chow hall, barracks, and, like, an indoor shooting range. And then we had, like, where we trained out in the fields. With them, I went to Rota, Spain. We were there for nine months, and we forward deployed to Israel for three weeks and trained with the Israelis. Well, that's um, cool. How was that? That was fun because... You know, me, I, I grew up, which I still am, but uh, Roman Catholic, like, you know, I go into Latin mass and all that. And, um, but you know, religious, what I'm trying to say. And, right. And then w- when we went to Israel, we, we uh, went to a place, I believe, called the Black Cat Base. Okay. And we were there for two weeks and we just trained with them. And then we had like a, I think it was like a two or three day libo out in Jerusalem. Oh, wow. And we got to go to all the like religious sites. Yeah. That's awesome. Um, you know, the city of Capernaum. I mean, Calvary. Uh, wow. Calgary, uh, you know, where Christ was crucified. We, we went to all these places and saw all these monuments and, you know, stuff like that. So being somebody who grew up hearing about all this, you know, learning about it and religion and, and you know, like the religious places. or And it was it was kind of cool to go see all that. that and cool. then from there, we went out to a mount town. I can't remember the name, but it was like right up the street from the Gaza Strip. And it was the it's the biggest mount town. We the U.S. built it for the Israelis, and we trained trained there for a week, and then we went to Masada, and swam in the Dead Sea, and then we went back to Spain. Came home, I PCS, and that's when I went to one five, and so I had thirty days of leave, and then in May, two thousand ten, I think it was like May thirty first, I got to one five, my unit in California. Okay. So, did, do you feel like your time in the security forces was good? Do you feel like that kind of prepared you for your role later on? or I don't know. My first year or so was kind of rocky for me just because, you know, even though I wanted to be in the Marine Corps and then you get there and you're like, this shit sucks. <laughs> <laughs> you know? No, no. I mean, I know how that is. I remember, like, you know, a lot of the talk when I was overseas in Iraq was like, God, I should have gone to college. Like, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> A lot of guys saying that. I was just talking to a guy actually on the way over here who... My uh, friend of mine is kind of having me mentor, and he's joining the Marine Corps. And he was kind of asking me about, like, you know, what it's like and stuff. I said, well, I don't know what the Marines is like. I said, but I know going to the Army, like, once you get there, you kind of, like, wonder if you should have done it. You yeah. Know? And that's kind of a common theme that comes up. But it'll truly be one of 
if not the best, one yep. of the best things you can possibly do. Because I got both sides of the spectrum, man. I played baseball in college, so I got to see what college was like. I went through my master's and did all that. And I could tell you still to this day that I learned the most when I was overseas. You know, there, there were a lot of things that you can read in a book that you'll never gather experientially, you know, until you go over there. So that I think that, man, I, you know, I wish more people got to feel that, yeah. you know, what that service is like. I mean, it's just like sticking with it, you know, when you stick with it and then later on in life you look back and you're like, yeah, I'm glad I did that. Yeah. And that's how it is. Like, I am glad I don't regret joining the Marine Corps. I don't regret anything I did in the Marine Corps, but. I mean, man, look at this, you know, look at, you know, I'm just looking around your house at all the monuments and all the pictures of these incredible guys. I, I'm sure you would never take back meeting any of these men yeah. and their families. So very important for, you know, your life, you yeah. know? So when you got to one five, uh, what was that experience like? Like I said, the line platoons hate security forces guy, but like I came in there, I wasn't like a jackass. I wasn't trying to like boss anybody around you know i i just take it with a grain of salt and like learn from whoever was talking in a sense yeah so if i had a lance corporal who was had already been to afghanistan or iraq or whatever you know and like i'm not gonna be like you know talking down to him like just you know treating him like a like another person and just like learn from him because of the experiences that they've had you know anyway so i i do remember the one one thing that kind of set it set it off so like i already had a full sleeve <laughs> which i got njp'd in security forces for uh I, I i finished my full sleeve and i tried to hide it um <laughs> during the winter time and when they came through the barracks to uh inspect it there was a corporal that was coming through and like i had a, a short sleeve on at the time and i didn't know so when they walked in the room i was like standing at parade rest with my arms behind my back as far as i could yeah. and he's all like oh, that looks cool. Let me see it. And then I'll, he was like, when'd you do that? And I was like telling him. And then I think it was the next day. Uh, it was a Friday and I was, it, we were already off work and I was in the chow hall and somebody come in and they're like, hey, first sergeant wants to see you. And oh, wow. he was like, right now, they want to see you right now. I was like, oh shit, I know what this is about. Mm-hmm. So I went in there and as soon as I went in there, he was like, take your blouse off. And then he was like, we'll deal with you Monday. So they tried to court-martial me and kick me out of the Marine Corps for it. Oh, jeez. Uh, but wow. the highest-ranking officer on that little base, uh, Yorktown at the time, was a major. A major or a captain? I think the major just left to go to Japan. Mm-hmm. So the, the highest-ranking officer was the highest rank that couldn't give me— I got uh, what was it, two weeks, 14 days— EPD and restriction. So two weeks. Okay. And I didn't get pay. Uh, like a lot of times you'll get loss of pay and it'll be like 60 days. So I couldn't get the full, the full, uh, punishment, but the first sergeant from second fast wanted to push it up to the regimental command and get me kicked out of the Marine Corps. Jeez. And it never happened. Anyway, coming into one five kind of already been working out being like a Marine, you know, just in the gym all the time. And, I had this full sleeve, so people kind of, I don't know, there was a couple times that people tested you. Yeah. And I remember this one time, and the guy still, his name's Daniel Avalos, and he still wants, he's like, I want a rematch. I was tired. I want to rematch. <laughs> anyway, and I asked Fillmore, because it was like the whole company was there, and like <laughs> all these, like some of these salty guys were out there. Anyway, so we had like this fire team, uh, week-long deal of fire team uh, competitions. Okay. And... uh one of them was like fire team on fire team uh, grappling. Yeah. And there was this one guy, Daniel Avalos. He was a sergeant. 
And he was like, ah, it's going to take all you guys to tap me out. Blah, 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 all this stuff. <laughs> and so then they like give us the go and I go over there and I choke him out like by myself. And so he's still pissed off about that today. Like he all, every time I talk to him on Facebook or whatever, he's like, I, I still want a rematch. I want a rematch. Anyway. <laughs> so I just, I don't know. My experience is, it wasn't bad. Like I wasn't a dipshit, but I kind of was a smart ass. <laughs> yeah. So that's, that's why I got selected to be a dog handler actually. Oh wow. Really? Because yeah, you were I, a smart ass. And they tried, they tried to kick me out of the platoon. Yeah. Oh, they yeah. tried to get rid of me. Wow. The, the platoon, the platoon sergeant, the platoon commander at the time. And my friend Mahavlik told me cause he was in HQ or in headquarters in the yeah. working with all the, whatever the platoon sergeant, platoon commander. And he's like, man, they're really talking shit about you in there. I've heard of Mahavlik. Yeah, Charles Mahavlik. Oh, he was there when we delivered the carving to uh, John's family. Oh, wow. He was the one who was there with his family. Okay, yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, Yeah, that's that's where I knew the name. Okay. Yeah, so he was with headquarters at the time. Anyway, so this was a few months later, and they tried... They wanted to send me to squad leader course, and I really didn't want to go because I was like, I'm getting out of the Marine Corps when we come back. Put Send somebody who's staying in the Marine Corps that can further their, their career, you know? Yeah. Like, I'm... This was 2010. I said, I'm getting out in 2012. Why don't you send somebody who who is going to do be a lifer or somebody who's going to do two enlistments, you know, or something, you know, it could help further them. So they got all pissed off about that, and they tried to kick me out of the platoon. So they're like, we're just going to send you to dog hammer school. Wow. And that's when Mahavlik was like, hey, man, they're really talking shit about you in there. They're thinking about sending you to dog hammer school. And I was like, oh, I don't care, whatever. Yeah. <laughs> and then it ended up being the best thing I enjoyed in the Marine Corps, really. It was like you're on you're on a vacation away from the Marine Corps. <laughs> <laughs> where, um, where is it at? So at the time it was in Hartsville, South Carolina. Okay. And there was like fourteen or sixteen of us, I believe. Yeah. And we had like a kennel master, and he was a staff sergeant that went with us. And then we had like lance corporals and a couple corporals, and and like the dog handlers they selected. So the Marine Corps was doing this program called the IDD which is improviser, Improvised Explosive Detector Dogs. Okay. It wasn't an MOS. It was like an attachment to the 03 billet, I guess, The o th- being a grunt. So Because okay. I was a grunt, I did security forces, but then my last two years I was selected to be in a line platoon. And then that, so this whole program was they selected a grunt from each platoon and they would send them to the schoolhouse and train them. And the dogs were already trained. They would just train you how to use them and work them. And then you come back to the same platoon as the platoon dog handler. And I guess my platoon sergeant and platoon commander didn't know that because when <laughs> I got sent to dog handler school, uh, after it, I just turned around and came back <laughs> to the same platoon. <laughs> but we ended up uh, getting a different uh, platoon sergeant, and he ended up being a really, really good Marine, like really good leader. That's awesome. So is that when you first met Allie? No, so actually I had another dog before her oh okay a lot of people don't know that but uh he was the best dog in the schoolhouse his name was gator mm-hmm. and i always say because Allie, and then my first ah. dog my first dog was gator and now my second dog was Allie. so alligator yeah <laughs> but uh was that school good did you feel like you really were prepared for the role uh, after there's always room for improvement we went to the schoolhouse in October, November 2010, and it was a five-week course, mm-hmm. and we went to Afghanistan the end of March. Okay. So kind of lo- short order. Yeah. Yeah. And I didn't. I got Allie in January. Oh wow! And then deployed with her two months later. Wow. 
uh, two and a half months later. It was really the end of March, beginning of April. But um, yeah, so I had another dog in the schoolhouse. He was the best dog in the schoolhouse. I mean, a lot of times, uh, you know, you're, you're using odor to train these dogs. And, and we were training in like hay fields and, and we'd go train in abandoned schoolhouses. Mm. And like wherever they had, you know, I don't know, leased on the property or people allow them to come and train but Allie is like you know if if the instructor would be like i want you to go search that area right there or not Allie, gator um and like you put the dog on on the path or whatever and like you send him out i would rarely ever have to give him an adjustment like he would go straight to where i was sending him and a lot of the other dogs they were like that's what this whistle right here you, you know you use you you use hand and arm signals and like and the whistle so you blow the whistle and the dog stops turns around sits down and looks at you and then you you give it a command by stepping to the side or back or forward and saying it, you know, over, back, forward. And so a lot of these guys, like the dogs would just be like running in circles out there. <laughs> and then in December, we were doing a uh, a seven-day Fenex thing, like training. And I'll never forget this. Like these dogs, they're not cheap. And the more training they do and the more deployments they do, the more expensive they are, right. obviously, because cost money to send a dog on that's been on three deployments to retrain it you know stuff like that i remember we were doing this 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 like mount town thing and we're patrolling up on it and i have the dog like walking next to me and and then all of a sudden it was like this explosion and then gunfire like a simulated explosion and gunfire and i'm like i look down that dog's gone and i'm like what the fuck like i'm like looking all over the place and this was on pendleton and then i look over and i see this dog run over this hill and i'm like oh shit so I, i'm like chasing it <laughs> And then I was like, oh, I'm so screwed. I'm like. <laughs> this <laughs> and, is your first time, yeah. like, showing your and, capabilities. And I was like, holy shit, I just lost this dog, and it's, like, $30,000 dog, and, like, I'm so screwed. And um, there was a base-wide search on Pendleton for the dog, and, like, a Marine found it snagged on a fence. He stepped outside a building to go smoke out the back door and, and like, saw the dog snagged on the fence. And anyway, so they, they brought the dog back, and this was, like, hours later. Yeah, this was when this was with Gator still. So Gator, the well-trained dog, yeah. ran off. <laughs> yeah, and he he actually had uh, been deployed before. Okay, so that's why I think like he, he had problems. Yeah, and dog like people don't realize that, but dogs get have issues too. Because I didn't know what his prior deployments were, but obviously it probably was some bad stuff. Because as soon as the gunfire went off, he in the explosion, he he ran off. Wow. And that's the thing too. Like in the schoolhouse, they use like simulators. Something that resembles like shotguns, right. you know, and the dog never flinched or anything with that. But it's, I don't know, as soon as it went over there and in California and started doing that training, it kind of changed things. Yeah. Up. I think it was the next day they took it over to uh, like the heavy machine gun range. The the trainers from the company that had the dogs and they took it over to the heavy machine gun range and they said that that dog just like, as soon as the guns started firing, that dog just collapsed and was like shaking like it was scared shitless. So, they're like, well, you can't use this one. You can't. We can't send you to Afghanistan with this one. You wow, know, so. that's interesting, man. The thought that these dogs have undergone some level of trauma, and that trauma yeah. affects them for the rest of their career. Maybe they're unfit to to do it anymore. Even a well trained dog that normally does a good job. Yeah, it's really interesting. I know Allie has been through some stuff. Yeah. So I know. That's why I think she freaks out when she gets in a car when we were blown up and she was in the floorboard of the seven ton. So, but I don't know because she did four deployments. Oh, you wow. Know? So, and I was her first handler. So, what happened on the other three? I know 
two months before that I got her, she was uh, near an IED blast, and um, but she was also bit by a snake, and she was in Afghanistan two months before I adopted her. Wow! On her last deployment. Mm. So, so what did they do when you deployed to Afghanistan? Did they uh, they assigned you a dog immediately, or did you wait for a while before you got before you got your dog? No. So the Marine Corps they do a thing called Mojave Viper out at uh, Twenty Nine Palms. Twenty Nine Palms, right? Yeah, that's when I got Allie. Okay. So I got her in January, and that's I believe five weeks of training. I believe. Okay. Four or five weeks. So I I had her middle of January until into February for that whole training ordeal. Okay. And she was a green dog. She didn't even have her tattoo in her ear yet. Wow. Like they had the dogs have tattoo numbers in their ears. Okay. Allie's tattoo number is P two nine five. After Mojave Viper, the company took the dogs back over to across the country, and then we came back to Pendleton, and then they drove them back out at the end of March. Oh. And so our the dog handlers were actually the last one to leave of the unit. Um, our whole unit had already left, and the only reason we were still behind is because our transport kept getting screwed over or something. When we fly over, we, we fly on like, I want to say like a C5 Galaxy or something, like a big, huge, big, big, huge plane with like uh, Connex boxes inside. Right. And, and we're sitting on the side with dog kennels. Wow, oh, okay. Um, that's how we went over there, and that's how we came back. And on the way there, we, we, we flew to Canada and Germany and then to Camp Leatherneck. So tell us a little bit about the mission in Afghanistan, what you guys were prepared you know, tasked out to do? I was just an attachment to whatever squad wanted to take me. Okay. Originally, I was with first squad, but then when I became the dog handler, I was the only dog handler for the platoon. Out of, I don't know how many people was in our unit in 2011, but say like 1,100 people maybe, 1,000 people, there was only 14 dog handlers. Okay. That were... With that unit, they they did have we did have combat engineers. Some of them that had uh, German shepherds. Right. All the dogs that we used that were with the IDD program were uh, labs. Okay. So we had, I think, two yellow labs and the rest were black labs. Okay. What was it like first going on those missions? And what what were you guys doing on these missions? Were you clearing areas? Looking uh, for- yeah, you're just patrolling, and then if if like the squad leader or whatever, they want to use you to clear an area. Usually I would be like the second or third guy back. Mm-hmm. And if we come up to an area and they want to search it, then they'll they'll ask you to bring the dog up and search it. And I don't know how you guys patrolled over there, but in Afghanistan we patrolled in the thing called a ranger file, mm-hmm. which is a straight line. Yep. And uh, so you have a sweeper and then you have a marker and then you have people behind you. And so the sweeper would just walk in a straight line and sweep the area and then the marker would um you know he would baby powder or spray paint all this is, is determined before you go on a patrol but like so if a guy's right-handed you shoot with your right hand you usually mark with your left hand you want to know that before you go on patrol cuz then when you're marking you know which side to stay on you know what i mean right so like if he's marking with his left hand, you want to make sure you stay on the right of that. I would usually be the second or third guy back, and you know sometimes I'd mark, and if I was the third guy back, then I wouldn't mark. On August seventeenth, I found a fifteen pound IED when I was standing on top of it. Oh jeez! And wow. so so we broke our uh, squad into two elements, and we came around to this compound, and the the one the first element had already went into the compound. And set up on roof security and all this shit. And I was the eighth man back. I wasn't searching. I remember Brown was the the sweeper. 
And I remember Hechos was in front of me, but I was the last one in the element at that time. Brown halted us in this little area. And I, I had this feeling. I was like, oh, he's got something now. And he was like, oh, it's nothing. Waved us to c- keep patrolling or whatever. And it was in the same area, but it was a little farther back from where he searched. I stopped in this opening of the uh, the compound wall or this wall where a compound used to be. And I just said, man, this would be a great place in my head. I was like, this would be a great place for a DFC, which is a directional frag charge. I look over at this cinder block, that this pillar, the cinder block pillar that fallen over. I always, no, I'm not going to say <laughs> I always <laughs> describe it as a cunt hair of, of lamp cord. Uh-huh. It's like a little bitty tiny bit of lamp cord yeah. sticking out of the dirt. And I, I knew, I was like, oh, shit. That was like a pucker factor. I was like, oh, shit, I'm standing on it. And I knew I was standing on it. And I had a, gar- no, Hechos had the Guardian on his back. It ended up being an RF2F, uh, like a remote debt. Okay. So I don't know if the guy was not there to set it off or if the Guardian that Hechos was wearing on his back jammed the signal. Mm. To your question of did they countermeasure those, I'm not really sure. I'm, that's that's what I'm like. If they did, they didn't do it on that one. Yeah. <laughs> you know? yeah. Was Allie with you on that? Yeah, she yeah. was with me, oh, but okay. she was just walking you know, out to the side. So, so do they have to be, I guess, you know, the sun's almost robotic in the terminology, but do they have to be activated to really start sniffing around for that? Or how does that work with searches with dogs? How, how do they discover IEDs or, or, or explosives? They'll probably find it if you if they're just walking around, but you also have to be paying attention to them. You know what I mean? So, right. like, if she's just walking off to the side and then we're just patrolling, and I'm not using her to search, then I'm not going to see like the in- indications that she's getting a hit or something like that. You right. Know? Which feedback. which falls on me for not paying attention to her. But if I'm not using her and I'm trying to walk, and you know, there's an indicator like they when you use them, you they'll go out, and you have to look for any small movements out of the ordinary. So if a dog is going on a path to where say say where you want them to go, or even you want them to go past it, mm-hmm. and as it's going in a straight line and the dog just like moves its head to the side briefly yeah. and keeps going straight, then that's that's like a indication that there was something that made them, you know, come off their path for a split second. You mm-hmm. know, so those are just like small things you look for um, when you're using a dog to search. You Anything that makes them out, move out of the ordinary or makes them uh, come off their path in a sense. Right. And uh, so then, it, then you bring it back and you... Haven't searched that area. Did you ever get those indicators with her? Where she did she have no? Yeah. No. So and I tell people all this, and I'll be like, I there was never an IED strike that happened when I was using her. You know what I mean? When yeah. I when I had her and when I was using her, like I tell people I never missed any I never found anything, but I never missed anything. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. So like She's your halo, man. Yeah. <laughs> Protected you on those missions. <laughs> That's awesome. But did, what did you enjoy most about your time over there with Allie? And what do you remember most about that? Having Allie was like having, there's a saying about dogs is like, you know, you can tell them all your sins and they won't judge you. Right. So just having Allie there was like, I could go to her when I didn't want to go to anybody else in a sense. You know what I mean? Yeah. So like if something bad happened that day and and you just weren't, and you're feeling down or whatever, I don't know. Like, you can kind of turn to the dog and they won't judge you. Yeah. Or they won't. I mean, a lot of the Marines are not going to judge you either because they're having probably the same struggles, the emotional struggles of dealing with a Marine being killed or somebody losing a limb or something, you know. Right. That's... But having her was a good release to just 
be able to go talk to her and she'd, you know, listen and be a dog and, you know, man's best friend. Yeah. There's a special kind of therapy to that, I think. I would, I'd almost want to see, like, a scientific study or, like, analysis on how much that helps guys yeah. when they have a dog there, you know? Because that, that is man's best friend, you know? Yeah. I mean, dogs are therapeutic back in the States, even when you're not dealing with a lot of issues, you know? Being able to, like, have your pup there is special. So well, can... that's why they use them for therapy dogs, you Yeah, know? yeah, absolutely. They have major benefits. Yeah. It, during that deployment, can you talk about you know, w- when the first kind of, when your first mission that you were on, when you, when you guys lost your first guy and what that, what that was like for you over there? So, like I said, we were the f- last ones to leave the the States to get to Afghanistan. And then when we got to Afghanistan, we had to do an acclimation period with the dogs for like 10 days. Okay. And then from there, we went out to our unit. So our units were, were already out there and had already done the rip with mm. uh, with three five. Okay. After our ten days there and doing some training at Leatherneck, then we went to uh, we left we we had our rides out to our AO and we took our ride like our a sea stallion I believe it was out to our AO, and I think I flew into Jackson or Nole and then um, I went over to I can't remember the name of the little base but I know Third Platoon was there. I was waiting at the at the base where Third Platoon was and I was sitting in the the building and with some other Marines and one of the Marines was uh, Joe Jackson and we're just sitting there watching a movie and on the laptop, a couple of us, the ride came and picked us up. And so that was, and then I went over to Wichitan, PB Wichitan where first platoon was at April 11th or so that we got out to our AO and I was watching the movie on that laptop with Joe and all the other guys. And, and then on April 24th, we got a call that there was, a need for a, a, a like a, a medevac to like take a marine from from on location to Nole because they couldn't get a helo a medevac helo into where they were at. So I remember Owen was the and they called it mobile, which is like the trucks, the mobile trucks. Right. And so I went I went with them. They had already put them in a, a back of a a truck, uh, one of the like the Afghan National Army trucks or whatever Afghan National Police trucks. Mm. And took them to Nole. So we continued the uh, mobile unit to uh, Mo- uh, Nole. And when we got there, I remember going over to the tent. And I remember Staff Sergeant Myers, who was the platoon platoon sergeant for 3rd Platoon. We get there and, like, you, you know, you walk up to the tent and Staff Sergeant Myers is like, don't go in there. No, it wasn't him. It was Ramirez, sorry. Mm-hmm. Ramirez is like, don't go in there. And you could just see all the Marines, like, all their faces, they just, like, they were all, like, pale, you know? Yeah. Like, they'd just seen a ghost, in a sense, like... So then, that's when, that's when Staff Sergeant Myers, uh, he was like, Joe's gone. I don't think he was gone at that exact moment, or at that time, because they said they were trying to keep him alive, but uh, what had happened is he slipped, he was on a patrol, and he slipped, and he went to put his hand out to catch himself, and from what I understand... Uh, he detonated the IED with his arm. Wow. And it the rest is kind of a, a gruesome thing, and the helo came in, and we're all standing there, and we see him take Joe by us. And they had a blanket on him, but they were trying to keep him alive. Yeah. That was like a big eye-opener, and that's when, like, oh, shit, this is real. Yeah. Yeah, it's tough, man. You know, when, when something like that happens, how do you how do you move on from that? How do you keep How do you keep going? You know, what is what is that that keeps you going after that? 
when something that tragic occurs. I don't know. Like all the guys around you. Yeah. I mean, you can't just like shut down. That's the thing. It's like you still have to function in combat. You still have to like when something bad happens, you have to like repress everything. Yeah. And that's what I guess tears a lot of people up when they finally get home because they're like, oh, like Doc from a friend of mine, Matt Matthew King. Uh, he said it before. He's like, you know, there's a honeymoon period when you get home from yeah. a deployment and you're like, oh, shit, I'm glad to be home. Like, I'm home. And then like you're all like. I don't know, the reality of everything kind of... I mean, it hits you when you're there, obviously. Right. But then when you come home, then you're like, uh, you, you have to process those things. You know what I mean? Right. It's and kind of a healthy yeah, thing. Yeah, it's healthy, but I don't know. I think it, it's like it can be overwhelming to some people, and that's why they have so much... I don't know, so many veteran suicides, I guess you could say. You know, like yeah. it's they're trying to process everything that happened, and it's just like, I don't know, too much for them at times. Yeah, that's interesting. You think about the the feedback period, right? Like when it initially happens, of course, it's difficult. Uh, you got to find the perseverance to go on because you're a Marine. That's what you do. Uh, and, and, you know, before you get over there, I think there's a, a kind of an understanding that this is probably going to happen. We're yeah. probably going to experience that. But then when it actually happens, there's that shock. And then you have to kind of wade through that and push through and keep fighting, you know, because you're Marines. That's what you do. Um but then when you get back, you know, I think it affects everybody in different ways. You know, some yeah. guys don't feel it until 10 years later, you know, probably. Yeah. They probably rep- repress it for a really long time. That's why you're getting, you know, some of these suicides are happening so much later, you know, as well. I mean, I mean, there's guys that, you know, who fought in World War II that, especially with my friend Andy, who does the rifle, that book, the project I told you about earlier. Right. Where he's talking, he takes the rifle around and he talks to all these World War II vets and been 75 years later 76 years later and they tell these stories and it's like they're like right there again you know like yeah. they, they i mean i think to a lot of people it's something that y- you'll never get over it's just like as the years have passed yeah i've in a sense accepted the fact that's something you i mean that's part of part of who you are now and you just you mature as an individual, you know what I mean? Like yeah. you learn to live with some of the things and some of the memories. Yeah, that's interesting. We, uh, I just did a project on a guy who actually passed away about two years ago now, but I did a project on him about four years ago or three years ago. And I was, his project is about to come out in the next couple months. It's just taken me a really long time to dig up some of the facts and, you know, make sure that everything's right. Uh, Doc Hazard, but he was with the uh, 79th, I believe, and they experienced, I think they did 169 straight days in combat, which was a record. And then they came back from the line like eight days, and then they did 82 straight more days. You know, you're talking about Siegfried line and, you know, Battle of the Bulge, all, all of, you know, some of the rough, rough yeah. stuff, you know, Hurricane Forest, Force of Death. Uh, and, and, you know, what's funny is like, he remembers every, he remembered everything pretty well, but he remembered one moment, especially towards the end of the war, uh, when he was, you know, coming back to his unit and he, they had a telegram for him and he had found out that his father had passed back in the States. And he said, man, nothing affected me more than that. And mm-hmm. he said, I remember going to a tree cause he was a captain and he went to a tree and he sat down on the other side of the tree so the guys couldn't see him. He said he, you know, he cried so hard he couldn't even think hardly. And uh, he remembered having to sit there for about 20 minutes. But while he was telling us this story, it was with my friend Jesse, uh, who who knew him. Who that that was like his childhood hero. 
Doc was. He was sitting there telling us this, man, and he started to cry like while he told us this story. And he was 93 years old yeah. at the time. I mean, that loss of his father had hurt him so much that he carried that with it, that trauma with him all the way, all throughout his life, man, up until the day he died. So I think learning to live with that is, you know, it's, it's you know, tantamount. important yeah. to do, but, um, yeah. A lot of guys can't, though. You know, they, they have a hard time wading through that. And it's understandable, you know, it is. So those losses are painful. And you guys lost many more after that, right? That was Easter Sunday. Um, Easter Sunday, April 24th. And Joe Jackson was the first one. And then four days later, he was with 3rd Platoon. Mm-hmm. Um, Alpha Company, and then four days later, uh, we had one of our common engineers who was killed, uh, Ronald Freeman. Mm. Wow. I mean, he was, an, he was an attachment. He was a common engineer, and he was with 2nd Platoon at the time it happened. 2nd wow. Squad, sorry, 2nd Squad. And how, how many guys did you lose total? In- uh, we lost 17 guys and over 190 wounded. Jeez. What was the free? What was the uh, frequency of those? You know, you know how 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 you know how often were you guys going out on missions? Was it every day thing? I yeah. mean, every day, sometimes twice a day. Yeah. So a lot of times you would send one squad out, and then when one would come back, then you'd send another out, and then sometimes they would even do one squad would go out and then come back, and then another squad would go out and then come back, and then the other squad would go out, or or the the one that went out first would go out and do an overnighter. So that was one thing that we did a lot of is we call them overnighters, and they wanted to have a presence in the AO outside of the patrol base. In our little AO, we had a patrol base, which was uh, PB Wishtan, and then we had uh, two OPs. One, one squad would spend a week, they would split up that squad, and they would one would half the squad would go to the one OP, and the other half would go to the other OP, mm-hmm. and they would be there for a week. So you'd only have two squads at the PB rotating in and out. I mean, every night we had an overnighter out almost because they hope like, oh, if the presence is out there, then maybe they won't play us IEDs, which, I mean, you can't see shit anyway. So, (laughs) you know what I mean? Like, It's kind of wishful thinking. Yeah, sitting on a a rooftop with your MVGs just looking down one road is not going to prevent somebody from placing an IED on the other road right up the street, you know, or something like that. Right. You had, obviously, you guys lost 16 more in that time period. You know, you were over there for nine months? Was it 10? Seven. Seven, seven months. That's right. What What are your some of your best memories of some of those guys? Because you, you knew some of them pretty well. Yeah, so Alpha Company had six okay. KIAs with our attachments, mm-hmm. so with our EOD and our uh, combat engineers. And I remember, like, some of the other guys that were in, like, Bravo Company, you know, I didn't. I didn't personally know them, and so I, I. And I tell the families when I deliver the carving, I tell them, like, you know, I did. I didn't know him. I served in the unit, but I didn't know him personally. You know, I, I clarify that, but uh, I still served with him. I, you know, within the, in the same unit. I remember every all the six that were killed. I remember the last time talking to all of them, except for the last time I talked to Greniger, and that that really kind of screws with my head i don't know in a sense because i'm like why can't i remember the last time we talked yeah like o'connor he he could have stayed at i believe it was nole and he could have just stayed there and done uh post because i remember he came to my he, he came to the pb with mobile and uh i was talking to him right a few days before he was killed and he was like yeah i just want to go back with the guys 
And then with Jackson, I remember watching a movie with him, um, with Freeman, the day before he was killed. I remember, I remember asking him to teach me how to use the Valon mm-hmm. with Patron. I remember uh, in August, uh, we went to go do like a kind of reevaluation with the dogs at Nole, and it was like a ten day thing. Okay. And, and was I, he a handler? No, he was an EOD tech. Okay. I remember I was waiting for the trucks to pick me up to take me. To Nole, Patron was on the front porch of their EOD hut, and I was just like, I'll see you when I get back. And, and then, how much has that, uh, you know, those memories help, you know, kind of perpetuate and create, you know, what, what you've done since those memories? How much has that been a drive to you for what you do now? The whole reason I started doing these carvings was because in 2016, in May of 2016, one of the Gold Star mothers attempted suicide. Oh wow! And so I remember I was, I was dating this girl at the time, and I was driving a U-Haul truck to Florida, like the biggest U-Haul truck they have. I was tired. I was worn out because I'd been driving for like twenty-something hours. Slept in the front seat of this damn thing and in the parking lot of this truck stop or whatever. Anyway, and like I was twenty, like twenty miles up the street from her grandfather's house. Yeah. And I get a message on Facebook. And she sent me a message, and she said, along the lines of, tried to kill herself. Mm. And I just remember, I was just like, I felt like a piece of shit. Yeah. Because I was like, man, like, you feel selfish, because I'm like, it's been five years, and I'm like, I went to grave before then, and and I'd met her her before then as well at his grave, and I, I had a friend of mine do this painting for her. I don't know, I was just like, I'm not doing enough for the families. Like, I feel selfish, like, worrying about my own problems or struggles or whatever, and, like, don't even really take in consideration what the families are over here, like, hurting just as bad, worse, you know? And mm. so that's when I was like, I need to do something. Like, what can I do? I've always been, and I always tell people, I'm like, I've always been kind of weird, weird and out there, and the things that I do, the the things I'm into, like, like I taught myself how to weld and like build my own rat rod and built my own motorcycle. And like, you know, so I've always been kind of artsy draw. I remember one time when we had a, a barracks inspection and the battalion commander came through, uh, and he came in my room and he stopped and he said, what are you, some kind of weirdo? Cause I had like pictures of like Frankenstein and shit on the and like sitting on the dress, like the, the dresser thing. And yeah. I was always like, drawing stuff and painting stuff and you know and uh hands-on probably you know as a younger kid always like working with my dad and in the shop getting dirty and stuff and so i i taught myself how to weld and building like uh, you know go-karts and stuff like that and when this happened and i was like i want to i need to do something for the families and i was like what can i do what about a chainsaw carving like this image the image of the battlefield cross out of wood you know i'm I, and I had never used a chainsaw outside of cutting firewood. I got online. I was like chainsaw carvers of Oklahoma. This guy came up. His name was Clayton Koss. Found a number and I called him. And he was like, giving me pointers, tell me what I need to buy, you know, kit for a saw or a saw, what kind of wood. And he was like, you know, you're not really picking a beginner piece. I was like, well, <laughs> I was like, not to like toot my own horn, but I feel like this is what I want to do. I don't want to go do anything else. Like, I, I don't. I have like a certain reason I want to do this. I don't want to go work, start carving bears for the next couple of years and try to. Two months went by. That was in May. I was fixing to go to uh, 
Minnesota to go see Greniger's family. Mm. And I was going to, it was, it was like five days before the fifth anniversary of his death. And, uh, I remember I just got a haircut and I was driving down the highway and I was like, man, I didn't do what I wanted to do. So I was just like, I'm gonna call Clayton. And I called him and I said, Hey, do you remember me? And he was like, yeah. And I was like, I'm fixing to go to Minnesota to see the family. Um, I was like, if I if I buy a piece of wood and bring it over to your house, do you think you and I could do it together? And he's like, Yeah, I got Saturday and Sunday off. I can I can help you do it. So I remember I was driving down the highway. It was raining, and I went over to this uh, tree trimming place right outside town. Found a log, and I didn't know what the fuck I was doing. I was just like, That one looks good. I'll do. I'll use that one. <laughs> so <laughs> you know, and like. I don't know what to look for in a log, and and I took it to his house the next day, and I was like, "Does this look good?" And he's like, "That's not one I would use, but it'll work." <laughs> and uh, probably not what you wanted to first hear, but <laughs> it worked. So that's how it all started. I mean, I did pretty much all the rifle on it, and it took me like twelve hours to do that. Yeah, yeah. Just the rifle, because like Jeez. I would, like I said, I never used a chainsaw outside of cutting firewood with chainsaw carving or any kind of sculpting or chiseling on marble or wood you can't put it back you know what i mean right it's not like clay where you can just slap it back on there and redo it and i've never messed one up where i've had to fix it either or where i couldn't fix it it's a destructive art yeah it's amazing right you'd rather cut off not enough yeah (laughs) so it took me that saturday and sunday to do the rifle and then he carved the boots, the base, and the helmet. Okay. And, like, he just whipped it out. He's like, you know, and, like, just watching him. I'm over there, like, yep, yep, like, using the tip of this saw, just barely whittling away at it. Yeah. And then he's over there, just, like, you know, whips it out pretty quick. We finished it Sunday, and then Monday night left for uh, Minnesota and got there Tuesday morning. The family had no idea that I was had done this carving and presented the first carving uh, at Greniger's grave on the fifth anniversary of his death. Wow. You know, you pointed to something a little earlier that I kind of wanted to hit on, but, you know, feeling like the families are left behind. That uh, I, I had a similar experience with doing the Veterans Project, you know, when I lost my uh, squad leader, you know, my best friend from my unit when he killed himself. Uh, you know, I was just aware, I, I saw his family and I saw, you know, the Facebook posts disappearing and, you know, people weren't sending messages anymore. And I, I felt selfish, uh-huh. I guess you could say, in a way. And so really that's what spawned the start of the caregiver project was knowing, you know, and, and interestingly enough, I met you through that, uh, through John Farius and the, the Farius family and uh, telling their story through the caregiver project. But I really remember like... It's a strange sense because people don't realize how how much of a story these families have. Yeah. And they don't realize the pain and anguish that they go through. But what you pointed out with uh, his mom, you know, you're pointing out a very real fact of the matter that that pain never goes away. I always tell people the Caregiver Project is much harder than the Veterans Project for me because I'm like sitting there for a day uh-huh. with a family who probably hates the fact that I have to be there. You know, like that's very painful. This is just something i've felt and it's in my own head it's not any that they've portrayed on me but right and i know they don't feel this way but sometimes i feel like guilty because i'm the one standing there and their son's not you know what i mean yeah oh yeah and i know they don't look at me and and think that way i know they don't like look at me and be like well i wish he was here instead of you you know what i mean but 
it's just you can't help but feel that in a sense, especially when you go and meet these families and like you're standing at the grave mm-hmm. and you know you're presenting them this carving and it's like it's a very humbling experience. It's like very very moving, very humbling and you know you're just like you're grateful for the sacrifice their son made and the the sacrifice that the family is making every yeah. day. Um it's a humbling experience and and that's why I, I talked about it earlier but um the actual carving part of it is physically exhausting, you know. Yeah, I've been out there when it's 100 and something degrees. I've carved when it's raining. I've been carving when it's snowing, you know. And like trying to get a carving done because I need to leave and get on the road and I'm driving for 15 16 hours straight and then I sleep in my truck front seat and then I get and then I get back on the road and drive for another 8 hours you know and mm-hmm. and then it's like all that leads up to the most difficult part which is standing face to face with the family and and being like here's this carving I you know I did this carving in memory of your son and I want to make sure that you know that we're out here and we don't forget we're not forgetting like almost every if not every one of the gold star families has said we're just afraid he's going to be forgotten. Yeah. And that's, I mean, the carving in a, should help reassure them that they won't be forgotten. Right. Because almost all the families, I didn't know, and I found most of the families through Facebook. Yeah. When I did the very first carving for Granger's family, I went six months before I did before I did another one because I was like, I was scared. <laughs> I was like, I don't know if I can do this. Like, I made a promise that I was going to do one for all 17 of them. Wow. And... But I made that promise to myself. Like, I didn't go out there and tell all the families, hey, I'm doing this right off the bat. That's probably smart. <laughs> yeah. And um, for one thing, one reason I probably didn't tell them all that is because I didn't, I wasn't even in contact with all the families. So I went six months before I did another one because I was scared that I couldn't do it up to pars the first one, in a sense. I was like, I don't know if I can do these and, that, and it not look like crap. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. So what happened was my friend Andy who runs the Boston Wounded Vet Run, He, uh, one of their honorees, his house caught on fire the day after Christmas and burnt down. And, like, he's partially paralyzed, lost part of his leg. He His house caught on fire. He crawled out the window with his two dogs and survived. Wow. And when I found out that that had happened, I told Andy, I was like, hey, if I do this carving, uh, will you you guys can have it to sell it, auction it, raffle it, and the proceeds go into Joshua Bochard. He was like, yeah, we'll do that. So I just went out there. You just got to like take the leap, I guess, in a sense, in some things. And I got a log. I had a saw. I remember how Clayton did it. So I'm going to just try to do it like how he did it. Anyway, so it took me two days, about 18 hours, and I, I completed it. And when I was done, I was like, man, this looks pretty good. Wow. Like, this doesn't look half bad. <laughs> and I ended up driving that to uh, Boston that next month. Uh-huh. And it auctioned off for three thousand dollars, and the pro- the proceeds went to the honorees, which Joshua Bochard was one of the honorees for that year. I came home and I did another one for a friend of mine, and he bought it off me, and it's actually in Broken Arrow at a barber shop. Wow! I did another one that I held on to, but ended up being for uh, O'Connor's family, and I ended up taking that one to Douglas, Wyoming, um, in June. But uh, before that. I did a live carving in Kansas at a small event. I flew. That's when I flew out to Oregon to do the one for the um, Joe's family. Wow. And I, 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 so, and this is why I've delivered all of them or or driven them. I had to ship my saws uh, to Oregon, and then I flew to Oregon. And then me and my brother, we went out, um, went into the mountains of Washington 
Mm-hmm. And the process of doing this one was, you know, it was a great experience to do with my brother, you know. Yeah. Because it was like we went out to this sawmill and out in the mountains of Washington and picked this log up and, you know, it, it was like an experience. Wow. And uh, and then took it back to his house and he filmed the whole process of doing the carving. That's and then crazy. he had to leave on a job and his friend took over and did the, the the actual videoing of the delivery part. Wow. And so I surprised the Joe's family and I delivered that one on the sixth anniversary of his death. Wow. And they had no idea I was going to be there. And I was talking to Sean, who's Joe's father, on Facebook. And I was like, do you guys go to the, the cemetery on uh, the 24th? And he was like, yeah, we usually go around 1 o'clock. So I was like, I planned it out. I did the carving at my brother's house. Took me like three days. Kind of gotten faster now. I can do it in under five hours. Wow. But um, I was like, I planned it out. I was like, well, I'll do the carving and I'll I'll be there. I'll make sure to be there on the 21st at the cemetery waiting for his family before they get there. So I got there before one o'clock, like an hour and a half before one o'clock, just to make sure that I could be set up. Waiting and waiting and waiting. I'm like, did you? Uh, so I was like, huh. So I sent him a message on Facebook. I was like, "Are you guys? Have you guys went to the cemetery?" And he's like, "No, I'm about to go over there." I was like, "Well, call me when you after you leave there." And I didn't know where he's buried. I knew what cemetery he's buried at, but I didn't know. You know, I'd never been to his grave. So we pull in. We're dri- I'm driving the van in my brother's van, and we got the carving in the back. And I saw his headstone because he has flags. His his family puts out flags. And you know you could look at the whole the whole area and you could spot his headstone like easily. Joe's father he pulls in finally, <laughs> and uh, he was like super surprised and and his wife didn't come and Gracie didn't come, which is uh, Joe's sister. And Sean and I we you know we sat at the grave for a little while and talked and then we loaded the carving up and I took it to his house, placed it in Joe's bedroom. You know so every single carving that I've done for the families, like it's a lot more than just here you go by, you know what I mean? It's like an experience in itself as well. Yeah. I feel a certain way about things. Like I, like I feel guilty, like I'm the one there and their son's not, but I also feel like, and I don't know if this is contradicting myself, but, uh, but I also feel like when I'm there, they almost feel like a part of their son is home for a little while. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Most of them, you know, they welcome me into their home. They, they show me like photos of his life, all these all these guys, they had lives, be, you know, before the Marine Corps, you know, like kid, all the stories they had as growing up, you know, as kids and stuff like that. And, you know, that's what the family remembers them by. And then we remember them by the time we knew them in the military, you know. So you're probably getting to experience them in a whole other way where you didn't know them before. Yeah. Yeah. And special. a lot of personal stuff. They tell me a lot of stories, you know, some good stories and some stories related to like where they were when the marines came and knocked on their door what they were doing you know stuff like that i don't know grateful that they they welcome me into their home and and i don't do it because i need the recognition i do it because i want them to know that their son's not forgotten and that they're not forgotten like every time they turn the corner and the carvings in their house or whatever then they'll they'll see you know they'll remember like oh this guy this guy it was Six years later, and this guy that we never met before came into our life, you know, when I delivered it to Joe's family, took it in there into his, in, into his bedroom and placed it in there, and they have it, you know, they had it all displayed with all tar- types of military stuff and all types of stuff that was given to them from people, and, you know, they're, uh, they're Native American, and Joe's father played a, a Native American uh, flute and mm-hmm. played a tune that, you know, he says he goes in there and plays it for his son, you know. Wow. So it's just stuff like that. It's just like personal stuff. They 
share with you when you go there to make these deliveries. Yeah. Each one is a special experience, man. It has yeah. its own signature. That's got to be pretty powerful. Do you feel like that's been therapeutic for you in getting to do that? Does it, do you feel like it's offered you some sense of closure in a way? I used to look at the carvings in two ways. The first way was how am I going to do all this? And then as it got closer to finishing it, it was what am I going to do next? And it was almost like scary. It was like, I'm, co- I'm coming to the end of this. Like it involves so many people and it, it was doing it for all, all these different people. I mean, they all share the same something in common, which is the loss of their son. Right. Beginning of it. I was like, didn't know how I was going to do it. And then at, at, as I got towards the end, that it started to scare me because I was like, well, what am I going to do after this? I've done 65 of them now and wow. I plan to keep doing them. But I also am trying to broaden what I can, what I'm able to do. So instead of just doing the memorial carvings, I do want to carve other things. Cause like I told you earlier, it was never about, oh, this will be fun or this is fun. Yeah. You know, I've never like, it might sound like a bad thing to say, but it's not. Yeah. I don't enjoy doing the memorial carvings because there's a reason behind it. Right. Somebody lost their life. Somebody was killed, you know, and that's the reason behind it. Yeah. I enjoy giving back to the families. I do enjoy that. Like I said, they, they share a lot of personal stuff and a lot of like heartache that they have and, and deal with. It's hard. I don't know. It's heartbreaking. It's heartbreaking. Yeah, yeah, man. No, I mean, I, I get what you're saying because of the caregiver project. Honestly, I feel like for me, that's kind of been a teardown process. I mean, in fact, that was one of the first points where I really realized that I needed counseling. Like, you know, I thought through the veterans project, I'd had a couple of like, I don't want to say breakdowns, uh-huh. but like, issues where I noticed with the veterans project, uh, where, where I was experiencing some emotional mental difficulties. And, uh, in, in a way it was healing to me to use my art form to help and to tell stories. But then when I got into the caregiver project, it's like a total teardown process, man. It's like, there's no, like, what's the redemptive side of this? You know, it's like, yeah, I'm telling your story, but again, I feel kind of the same way you do about the caregiver project. And like, it's kind of sucks, man. Like it's, like like with the veterans project at least the veterans there you yeah. know and i get to give them a piece of their legacy and i'm able to showcase that in a way that benefits the whole community you know like we're we're trying to highlight veterans so that we bridge this gap between civilians and veterans and help them better understand the individual side of what we're doing like what we're doing right now and yeah. talking to you uh, but with the caregiver project, it's like you got some mom like scream at the top of her lungs, you know, when you're asking her about her son, you know, in, in anguish. I don't know what to say. Yeah. And well, I still sit I mean, there so many times and I just like pause, you know, like I'm not I, uh, I just just quiet. You know, I mean, I, I can't tell you on every caregiver project uh, podcast we've had at some point they've broken down. You know, and sometimes it's been hard. Uh, Riley Stevens, you know, who's a Green Beret depicted in the book Lines of Kandahar. Uh, he was killed like six years later after that battle. And his dad, his dad is like a hardcore Texan, you know, seems like he's probably cried like two times in his life, you know, <laughs> like, like, and, and over very serious things, you know, hardcore old school Texan. And having him like, you know, crying to the point where he couldn't even talk mm-hmm. and sitting there and like, you know, feeling like I was watching my dad in a way because my dad never cries. And, like, seeing him cry is just tough, man, like, working through that. So I can only imagine, you know, you doing that art, you know, knowing you're, you're committing yourself to something so much greater than yourself, but then having to deliver that to the family and seeing what they've gone through since you, since their loss. Yeah. It's difficult. I mean, everybody copes with it differently. Right. So some of the families, they're, they deal with it better than 
others, you right. know, yeah. obviously. And like I said, it's been years later, six, seven, eight, now nine years later. But when I started doing that, and when I, when I very first started doing this, I was like, this is going to take me forever. I don't know how I'm going to complete all this. And, and then I was like, what if it does take me five years? It doesn't matter. Like it doesn't, it doesn't have to happen in the next month. You know what I mean? Like the families will still be dealing with these years later. So yeah. if I come into their life 10 years later or five years later, or you know, well, six years later, it doesn't matter. It doesn't need to happen now because they'll, even if time goes by, they're still going to be, um, I almost think as time goes by, because then they see like, oh, they're still not, you know, there's still, still people out there. Yeah, yeah, they're still out there that are remembering. There's still people, which obviously there's a lot more. There's a lot of people out there that will never forget because anybody who served with anybody who was lost in combat or, you know, that was killed in combat, like you got a whole battalion, you know, a whole battalion of guys that are spread out across the country that knows, you know, these Marines up on this wall, you know? Yeah. That's powerful, man. I mean, I, you know, I think about, yeah, I think in, in the same way, you know, there are some similarities between what you and I are doing in that, you know, quality over quantity. And a lot of the times, you know, you, like you said, you know, sometimes it might be 10 years down the line or dude, it might be 20, you know, yeah. like, but, but the, that pain never leaves them. So they'll always treasure that and it'll always be important to them, yeah. you know? So I think that's important. You know, I, I wanted to get into what you're doing specifically with this art and with this incredible work that you're that you've started. But you've you've gotten um, you've gotten to do some pretty incredible things. You, you mentioned, you know, Coach Switzer, yeah. you know, Barry Switzer jumping on board. And can you talk a little bit about that and what that was like and, and why that association came to be? Yeah. So in 2014 and july of 2014 um the marine corps the government i guess it was but anyway uh they did away with that program of the 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 idd program the with the dogs and all the dogs went to either law enforcement or got adopted out and it was may 2014 a lot of things happened in may the carvings happened and started thinking about that in may and then this in may of 2014 uh i started thinking i was working driving and i was like i wonder what happened to Allie. just started trying to reach out to people, trying to find uh, people um, dealing with the uh, the company that contracted the, all the dogs, trying to get a hold of them, trying to get a hold of uh, Steph Sergeant Martinez and trying to figure out where the dog was. Got a hold of the people, and they were actually like, yeah, we had you on file, and we were actually going to call you because she's up for adoption, or she's getting ready to become up for adoption. And then in July, I filled out all the paperwork, and you had, I think, 14 days to pick her up after the paperwork was sent back in. So the Tulsa world here ran some stories. Coach and his wife, Becky, were reading the paper one one night and saw this story in the paper and um, got a hold of the editor of the Tulsa world, and they were like, I don't, I don't, I'm not a big sports fan. I don't watch sports. I'm like, I knew of Barry Switzer. I didn't know. I thought he was a football player. <laughs> and so so the editor Tulsa World the editor of the Tulsa World calls me. He's like, Hey Barry Switzer wants to talk to you. I'm like, I just left the gym and I was like, he's a it's like he's a football player, right? And he's like, No, he was the coach for the OU Sooners. I was like, Oh, okay. So he gave me his number. I called him. Coach was like, Hey, yeah, me and Becky, we were just reading this paper story and uh we want to help you out. We're gonna let you fry on our fry on our private jet to go get get the dog. So my brother, who is a filmmaker, we had already planned, like, we're going to do this road trip. We rented a car, and we're going to do this road trip. He's flying in tomorrow. 
and we're going to drive and go get this dog or go get Allie and like film the whole thing. And so I was like, okay, I called Manny and I was like, Hey, some things have changed. They want to let us use this jet. And he was like, it's up to you. It's your story. And I was like, yeah, it's like a once in a lifetime thing. Let's do it. We ended up taking the the private jet to uh, North Carolina to get the dog. And then um, we came back and Monday, we came back on a Monday. And then I think that Thursday or Wednesday, uh, me and both my brothers and Allie, we drove up to Norman and uh, went and saw Coach and his wife, Becky. And we went, went in their house and Got to see all, uh, you know, all, all those trophies and stuff like that. It was, it was cool. It was like, like I said, I'm not a big sports fan, and he was like a real down to earth guy. We went to a, a little sandwich shop in town, and like in or in the neighborhood right there, mm-hmm. and we just ate at the sandwich shop. He drove us around the uh, the campus and was showing us stuff. We get back to his house after eating lunch, and he's like, "Oh, I think Toby's there," and his daughter lives right across the street, and he's like, "Oh, that's Toby Keith's truck. Let's go over there." So we went across the street and uh, knocked on the door. And open it up, and it was Toby Keith, and he's like, "Hey, come out here!" And my brother's <laughs> filming, and he's like, "Oh, Manny asked Coach." He was like, "So who's this?" And Coach looks at him, and he's like, "This is Toby Keith. Everybody knows who the hell he is." <laughs> and uh, but anyway, so uh, he he's got like five dogs himself. I think three German Shepherds and two Labs, and mm-hmm. you know we go out in the backyard, and he's got like turf. And Manny was going to do, like, a little interview part with Coach. And, like, I just remember Allie started shitting all over his, like, back <laughs> patio area. <laughs> and I was like, oh, crap. I was like, ugh. And, but, so that's how I became uh, friends with Coach. So then when I started doing these carvings, I would send him some uh, photos of the carvings. And he got involved more than I expected, but... I'm very grateful that he did. And everything he does, he does like, he, he like truly cares. Like he always calls me. He's like, this guy's a patriot. This guy's, you know, a great American patriot, but he, he's like a, a patriot. He's like a real true blooded, loves the country, loves, he loves what I'm doing with the carvings. And right. I've always been grateful. Yeah. Coach, coach became involved with, uh, what I was doing with the carvings in 2017. So <clears throat> that's when it kind of really started. I started getting, really making an effort to try to do them and do more of them. He has a show on Cox where they narrate the OU games. So they had me on their show for the halftime show, and they were playing Texas in 2017. It was October 2017. Anyway, he played the little video uh, that my brother put together. And so the footage that we took when I went and did the carving for Joe's family, like we just took that. We never really planned it. Well, we didn't know what we were going to do with it. And And I asked Manny, I was like, hey, can you just put together a small clip that they could play at the halftime show, and that's when he put that together. And then it actually went and played in the GI Film Festival and a couple other film festivals. Wow, that's so, amazing, man. Yeah, we went to the GI Film Festival last September, September, and it was selected uh, to win Best Short Documentary, and we got beat out by another another documentary. But um, Coach, is a he's a very down-to-earth American patriot. He was in the Army. I didn't know that. Wow. He when he gave me one of his books one time, he was like, "Just skip past, skip to this page. You don't need to read all that football bullshit." <laughs> and it's just like, anytime you you talk to him, he's just just like a regular guy. That's cool. We need you know what's important. You're you're hitting on something there. Uh, it's it's very important that we have you know guys out there like that. Obviously, he's a veteran, but a civilian now yeah. that's you know willing to help. We need we need people that are willing to do that. You know to help us. You know yeah. where we're at because you know like I made the 
the point to so many guys. In fact, you know, uh, Phil Moore's here right now, but, you know, I, I'm sure I've talked to him a little bit about, you know, the fact that we are the 2%. You know, there aren't very many of us. So when we come back, you know, we need those jobs. We need opportunities, you know, and those opportunities come through civilians most of the time. So them understanding our community is so important, you know. And yeah. So obviously Coach Switzer understands. Yeah, he does. He's offered his help without me. I've never asked him for anything. And he just, like the time, uh, like last year, I, I told him, I was like, yeah, they're, I'm doing this carving for uh, an Eagle Scout project, and it's going to go in the VA hospital. And he was like, well, if it lines up with my schedule, I can come. Yeah. He came to the uh, the dedication ceremony at the VA hospital, and he spoke about how him and I met and, you know, the carvings and the process of doing the carvings and whatnot and that that's really cool because you know it, it could have just been a one-time transaction where he yeah. lets you get on his plane but he's obviously made that into a relationship which is really special yeah so what was that feeling when you saw Allie for the first time and and you know how long had it been we got back october 19th 2011 mm-hmm. they were already there waiting and within 30 minutes the dogs were loaded up and gone and i was like well, i'm probably never gonna see her again you know yeah and you go through this, you know, these traumatic experiences with her, and then all of a sudden she's gone, you know, like out of your life. Yeah. I ended up, I got out of the Marine Corps uh, March 2012. And that next month, I adopted uh, a Doberman here uh, local to Tulsa. And I had her for six years. When I first saw Allie, there were so many people in the room with, with everybody that I brought, my two brothers, and then, uh, my mom and two of my friends and then the people who, the staff who work there, like we're all kind of walking in this room and then Allie's like running around, you know, she was a younger dog then. So she's like running around and like just kind of all playful with everybody. And then we went out in the parking lot and that's when I think she started to kind of remember me. Cause she like would, she sat down next to me and like lean, like would lean her head <laughs> and lean her body on my side, like my, my leg. Wow. Getting her back was, is like getting a, piece of the past you know in a sense Mm -hmm. because that part of my life was over of of like it's never really over you're always the memories are always there but the actual part of being there was has gone gone and over between roxy and Allie, that's like the main well not i won't say the main but things that have helped me out a lot in a sense yeah how do you how important do you think that therapeutic aspect is you know for in having her you know there with you now here back in Owasso you know Oklahoma yeah. that's got to feel a little strange um, but. well it a lot of times I look at her and I'm like I can't believe I can't believe like the shit we went through <laughs> you know I'm like I can't believe the shit we went through and then like I can't believe she's here I've got a few photos on my phone like my nieces and nephew like all laying around her and playing with her and it's just like they have no idea, <laughs> you know, <laughs> yeah. they have no idea like what this dog has been through. Yeah. But I mean, I don't, I, I, I don't say that in like a mean way. I'm just like, they, it's they, a special you know, connection. And, you and, yeah. And then I even tell my mom and my dad, I'll tell them, I'll be like, you don't even realize what this dog has done. Like people don't like the dog's done more, more than some people, you know what yeah. I mean? <laughs> more and than the, a lot of people. Yeah, yeah. More than a lot of people. It's done more for the country and you know, this for the other Marines that were there and then dogs are selfless. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Yeah. That's amazing, man. So many people don't think about the, the veteran aspect of that, right? Like these dogs are veterans, you yeah. know, they're warriors in a lot of ways and them being over there and doing what they do is extremely courageous. And people look at it like this, but they're a tool, you know, they, mm-hmm. they're used as a, a tool or 
but I mean, they're more than that. They're, there's, they save a lot of lives. Yeah. They, they really do. And they've been used for years. I mean, outside of, you know, the current conflict, they've been used for years before, you know, and hopefully they use them years. I mean, I mean, it'd be nice if we didn't have to have conflicts in the future. Yeah. Yeah. I'm pretty sure dogs, dogs are smart, you know, labs are smart, but dog, dogs in general, they're smart. They can, they train them for all kinds of stuff. Yeah. What is it like, uh, you know, how, how old is she now? 12? 12. Yeah. She'll be 13 in January. Wow. I realize as she's getting older, it's like, there's going to come a time that I'll have to lose her again, but this time it'll be for like ever, you know? Yeah. If I never would have gotten her back, then I... I never would have had to deal with her passing. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And but then again, I would never have gotten the years that I'm getting now with her. You know, mm. so I mean, everything comes with a price, and I already know like it's gonna it's gonna hurt when she goes. I adopted a Doberman when I got out of the Marine Corps then that, that next month, and I had her for six years, and because I never thought I would see Allie again, so I was like, you know, I want a dog, mm-hmm. and uh, I had her for six years, and then. The summer of 2018, I had to take her in and have her put down, and that was hard. Yeah. Labs, they live for about 15 years, but she's had a hard life, you know? Yeah. She hasn't had, like, a cushy life living living on a couch. No, no. Very hard life. You know, it's funny that you mentioned that, because I was thinking about that on the way over here. Uh, I was sitting there at a stoplight, and I just thought about how much I love my dog, and, you know, my dog has not sacrificed anything but i've i've had her since right after iraq and she's you know we have a special relationship because of that um because she was there with me through a lot of you know my own you know issues throughout the years and after iraq and uh you know she's been very special to me so i thought gosh man like taking a dog to war with you and then being able to get that dog back and like losing i mean that's truly a once in a lifetime animal you know it's very special so i can only imagine that's tough right now, like in your life and what you're doing now with the carvings, but your personal life and you know, all that you're doing post military, what do you think has been the most therapy? You know, I keep bringing up this word therapeutic, but it's, it is important. Can you talk a little bit about, you know, some of the factors of PTSD and some of the things that you've dealt with since, you know, getting out and you know, how those losses have affected you? I've always been kind of, quiet and reserved kept to myself like if you knew my dad he's like very one-word guy you know yeah, yeah. <laughs> he doesn't say a lot and but uh so i've always been kind of like that so post military i'm still that way that's just the way i am like yeah. I'm, I'm just quiet yeah I, and i don't ever like talk about like having issues but i know i'd have issues yeah. i mean the marine corps and the military and especially combat it changes you like there's no doubt about that yeah Sometimes I think there's there's good change and there's bad change. Some of the bad change is just like I said earlier, you learn to kind of live with that. Right. Yeah. Um and like like I said, you, you mature. You mature as time goes on, you mature and you learn how to cope with it better. Right. Some things can bring you back. You know what I mean? Yeah. It might be 10 years later, it might be 20 years later or whatever and like now it's been 9 years later, but there are still times that like it hurts yeah. a lot. Yeah. A lot more than I want to admit, but I don't know. You kind of cope with it. Yeah. Do you, do you see any of those aspects in, in Allie? Do you see in the way she reacts to things, or do you notice anything within her where you can tell that? Yeah, so I think she has problems with, just like the first dog I had, Gator, mm-hmm. when 
when we went to that mount town and the explosions went off and the gunfire started happening and the dog ran off. Well, Allie, she hates getting in vehicles. Like, like anytime I put her in a vehicle and want to take her anywhere, she like starts panning real hard. Like she's about to have a heart attack and I'm afraid she's going to have a heart attack, especially now she's getting older. Yeah. Cause I know her and I were in the blast together in yeah. May, you know, like I said earlier, like, I don't know what happened on those other three deployments. So maybe when she gets in a vehicle, she thinks something's going to happen that she doesn't want to happen, you right. know? Yeah. She might be scared that something, this this movement of this vehicle bouncing around and driving around makes me feel like something's going to happen here soon or something. Maybe that's her thought process and she starts freaking out. Yeah. Yeah. That's interesting to think about. Like I said, I mean, I don't think pe- people often you know, associate that with dogs, but yeah. you know, there is that traumatic factor obviously. And you said for you, like the, the gym has been therapeutic as well too, right? Yeah. So the biggest things that I do is the gym and skydiving. Mm. Oh yeah. Skydiving. <laughs> Mr. Skydiver. <laughs> Those are the big two. How cool is that for you? Like getting to jump out of a plane. To be honest with you, I hate flying. <laughs> I can't stand flying. Are you afraid of heights? No, I'm not afraid of heights. Well, yeah. I'm afraid not. of heights, but I like the I but but for some reason I like the rush. Yeah. yeah. Um so I don't like standing on tall buildings and looking over the edge. That's no, kind of Yeah. And neither. I cut this tree down 2 days ago and I was up on this platform. It was a bobcat with forks and a plat, uh, and a <laughs> a pallet. <laughs> and I was cutting limbs off this tree and like just that, you know, but like 10 foot in the air, or 12 foot in the air. I'm like, "Ooh." Yeah. But uh I've had no problem I can I can look outside of a plane and spot spot where I want to get out of the plane and like looking down and see everything it, it doesn't hurt me it doesn't affect me. Yeah. That's interesting cuz I I kind of felt the same way about, you know, the the and I've only skydived once it was tandem, but in the time that I got to do it is like the plane on the way up uh-huh. there's definitely some like not nausea but anxiety like and by the time we got up to the, I think they purposely like make those planes that way, but <laughs> they're like rickety, like feel like they're going to fall out of the sky at any moment. And I think we were in a Cessna, but like when we got to that point where we were supposed to drop, I was just like, get me the hell out of here. <laughs> like, yeah. I don't care how I got to go down, you know? <laughs> so like I said, I, I don't even like flying. So at the drop zone, I'm known as like, I do a lot of hop and pops, which is like where you get out lower, mm-hmm. especially in the summertime. And I always tell the pilot, if I'm doing a hop and pop, I say anything above 32, give me the 35. Or sometimes I'll be like anything over three. Yeah. Because I'm like I just want to get up and get out. Yeah, yeah. I don't, I don't want to be in the plane sweating and getting hot and all cramped in there. And I'm just like just get me up and get me out. What do you think about it? Is therapeutic to use that the adrenaline rush or what do you think? I mean, I do get an adrenaline out of it, but it's just an awesome activity. <laughs> <laughs> it's just a fun activity to do. It's like there's a lot of people in especially at the drop zone I go to, but there's a lot of people who were prior military and like you kind of share that camaraderie with some people. And like, I've met some great people at the drop zone that were in the military. Like one of my good friends is, was in the Marine, uh, in recon in the Marine Corps in like the eighties and nineties. And, mm. and there's another guy, there's a guy still at our drop zone. His name is Bob Schaust. And he, uh, he's like 70 something years old. He made his first jump in 1965. He was, a wow. special, he was a, uh, special forces, uh, in Vietnam. Wow. So, so like he, Mac he, V yeah, Sago G. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and he, I saw him out there last weekend jumping, Jeez. And, you know, so there's a lot of good people out there that are like prior military and you kind of have that camaraderie that you don't get that you had in the military. You know, you have it with skydivers, 
um, yeah, some skydivers, not all. But. Yeah, yeah, it is is cool that uh, endorphin factor. I think is extra healing. You know, getting that yeah. brain, getting those positive brain waves. You know, like like with the uh, the workouts. You know, I find the same thing, man. Like working out is extremely therapeutic to me. Like I I can't imagine, uh, you know, I can't imagine a week going by where I'm not in the gym. You yeah, know? it's like that part of it is just time for my brain to kind of slow down but at the same time speed up in a lot of ways in my activity and I don't have to focus on my own issues. I can think about just carving myself out, working hard and getting in there. Is that, that kind of the same for you? Yeah. I mean, so including the gym and skydiving, it's like, I feel like I'm a cheat. I'm working towards something. What that is, like, I don't know. Like I always tell people I skydive for myself. You know, I do it because I want to, there's a thing in skydiving and a saying in skydiving is like, you can't explain it. You just, you have to experience it for yourself. Yeah. But uh, also with the gym is like, I feel like I'm working towards a goal. I want to be a better, I want to be a better individual, like physically. Yeah. You know? Yeah. I enjoy that. I enjoy, I used to be big into powerlifting and trying to hit, hit heavy lifts and goals and stuff like that. And I don't really do that heavy lifting anymore as much as I used to, but I still enjoy working out and, you know, trying to better myself right yeah i think that's one of the big factors too the process of it is getting better because uh you know in the marine corps you're constantly pushed to be better you yeah know? and that's that's an important factor in everything you do well that's the thing too is like i'm proud that i didn't get out of the marine corps and just like blown up like a lot of people <laughs> <laughs> like a lot of people they get out of the military and they're just like you see some of those good year blumps out there, definitely. <laughs> yeah, totally, man. It's important. I wish, I, I think if we all recognize that as a lot, you know, more how therapeutic that could be, you know, we could lessen that suicide rate. I really believe yeah. that. You know, there's, there's been so many studies in physical activity, you know, where that helps so much of the mental processing as well. You know, so obviously you're going to keep doing this, you know, carving and these incredible, incredibly beautiful wood carvings, uh, you know, for these families. What, what What's up next? What do you have going on next with this? Right now, I don't really have anything planned. I could do carvings and people would contact me about them. You know what I mean? Right. But everyone knows with all the COVID-19 stuff going on. Yeah. Um, a lot of stuff's been canceled. So there was a possibility that I was supposed to be uh, carving at a, a an air show in Ocean City, Maryland in June, but that all got canceled. And that would have been a big thing. That, there was a possibility I was going to jump out of a B-25 Mitchell too. But, oh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, so when yeah. I did a live, so I've done many, many live carvings and for Veterans Day and different, different organizations. But right now with everything going on in the world or there's nothing planned, you know, yeah. hopefully maybe by towards the end of the year, October, November, I'll have some stuff that especially around Veterans Day, I can do some carvings. And since I don't, I don't do it as a full-time job, you know, and so all the carvings that I did for the 17 families, like I did those, you know, I, I didn't, obviously I didn't, I didn't charge the families anything for that. Right. That's where coach comes back into play, but he helped raise quite a bit of money that I used those funds when I would leave on a delivery to go deliver a carving to one of the gold star families I would use the funds that he helped raise uh, for like food, lodging, and gas. Mm. I would just take off work and, you know, and go do the delivery. So a lot of the live carvings that I do now, I do charge to do them because I need, I'm, I'm on my own dime now. Right. You know? Yeah. 
and it costs a lot of money <laughs> to drive all over the place. People don't understand that about yeah. art, man. It's like I'm, I do this full time in the on the project side, and it's like you know you don't realize when you're talking to sponsors, like this is not a low price. Like yeah. there's a lot that goes into the work, you know, getting on the road of, you know, everything. I mean, everything that goes into it is yeah. a massive just, expense. Just a trip in itself on driving and then staying in hotels and food, you can rack up a thousand dollars like oh yeah nothing yeah absolutely so that's why when i do these carvings it's like i have to you know charge to do them because i need to be able to pay and then make make something off of it too but i've done carvings for different veteran organizations as well and uh there's one that i've helped out a little bit um it's called wounded warrior outdoors and that's, oh yeah i've heard of them yeah. yeah so my old squad leader matt amos who lives in kansas he's a double amputee he um, he's part of this organization and he, when, I think when he was still in the hospital or recovering, he, uh, he went on a bear hunt with them or something like that. I can't remember all the details, but anyway, so a few years ago, he asked me if I would bring a carving, um, to Orlando, Florida to their, uh, it's called cocktails for a cause party. I did a carving, another guy named Matthew Kurt, who's in the Marine Corps as well. He was doing the wooden flags mm-hmm. and he did a, he did a flag and him and I drove out to Orlando and they auctioned off that carving and his flag. His flag went for three grand, and the carving went for twenty five five, twenty five thousand five hundred. Wow! And so what happened was the guy who won it donated it back, and they ended up auctioning it off like five different times. Oh my gosh! All said and done, there was like twenty five thousand five hundred that went. So between that carving and our flag, the the flag Matthew did. We we raised twenty eight grand for the organization. Wow! And um, the very next year, to the almost to the day, it was like a day less. I I was in Reno with the same organization, and I took a carving to the uh, the sheep show to the wild uh, wild sheep foundation. Yeah, I've heard about them too. Yeah, and um, so I took a, a big carving. I did an eagle with this big. It was like a big huge carving. I, first time I ever did an eagle. It was up on this tree. And then I had a branch with the flag hanging on it. And then I had a plaque with all the 17 Marines names. And then I had a battlefield cross that set in front of the flag. Wow. And that carving auctioned off for 25 grand last year, 2019. Wow. And then this year, this this past January, I took a carving and I, I carved like a bust of a ram head. And it went for $14,000. Wow. So I've raised like 64500 or something like that for... For the uh, Wounded Warrior Outdoors, Jeez, that's and then amazing. I've done, I've done a few other carvings, and like the one I did for uh, Turkey Hunt in Kansas, and they they sold raffle tickets that raised like forty three hundred dollars. I've done a a dog head that went for like twenty, like a bust of a dog, that went for like twenty twenty three hundred dollars. That proceeds went to I think law some kind of law enforcement. That's cool. That's got to be very special for you to be able to help out these organizations yeah, in that way, right? Outside of helping the gold star families then when i when i get involved with like wound warrior outdoors and do a carving and you know the proceeds go to the wound warrior outdoors and i don't charge wound warrior outdoors i just do the carving and it's they take you know wounded vets on hunts all over the world ron's the founder of wwo ron and his wife lisa and they they're great people they uh they've kind of i don't know taken me under their wing and they they let me hang around <laughs> help <That's> out cool. <laughs> help out when i can i like doing the carvings and because i know that, that it's going to a good cause. Yeah, that's amazing, man. 
I was supposed to be in New Zealand in April, but that trip got canceled. Oh, no. Curse you, COVID-19. Yeah. Jeez, New Zealand. That would have been cool, man. Well, I'm sure you'll get another opportunity. Yeah, it was rescheduled for next April. Okay, awesome. So you still get to go. I was supposed to be, what was it? I was supposed to be in Alaska right now. Wow, gosh. (laughs) But that that trip got canceled. Yeah. But. Yeah, that's tough, man. Yeah, I know. It's with the art thing. I didn't think it would affect the project at all because I'm going, you know, like one-on-one, but it's just because so many of these guys are doing very active things, you know, and with the older guys, I don't want to be around them because I don't want to risk anything. You know, we still don't know what this really is, you know, so for me, like with the younger guys, it's like I could have still done it, but they're not doing the activities that they normally do, so it affected the project too. I mean, on my last North Carolina trip a couple weeks ago, that was my first you know, trip in a few months. So that's the thing with everything that's been going on. I've been lucky that I'm still, I'm not traveling, Yeah, but I'm still carving. Right. And I'm still, I'm still working. So what we spoke about earlier, drive the, I drive a garbage truck for the family business. And I mean, we've been working every week, every, every day that we run, we work four days a week and we haven't taken off during all this because everybody needs their trash pickup. So yeah, still an essential uh, business. Aside from that, I come home and like, I'm able to work out here at home because the gyms have been closed. So, but during that time, I I I wasn't able to skydive because the drop zone was closed. But a drop zone opened back up in May second, and I've made forty three jumps in a month and a half. Wow! How many jumps have you done all together? Four hundred sixty five. Jeez. Trying. I I wanted to have five hundred by my fifth anniversary. That I started jumping in April two thousand fifteen. Okay. That didn't happen. So yeah. Anyway, I'm. You'll still get there. Though. Yeah. <laughs> hopefully by maybe August. We'll yeah. Well, Anthony, anything else that you want to mention? Where where can we find your work at? So you can just find it on Facebook. It's just seventeen carvings, and it's Roman numeral seventeen. It's not. So it's X V I I carvings. Right. Do you have a website yet? I had a website. I don't know if I it's still up. Because mm. I didn't pay the <laughs> domain for. It. We need to have that up, man. Yeah. You got such an awesome artwork. It's a good, great place to point people to. So, seventeen carvings is what I started doing in 2016, and, right? And the seventeen resemble because people ask me this all the time. And they know the story. They're like, "What's that mean? What's the seventeen stand for?" It's like, well, it stands for the seventeen Marines, you know. So, right. That's what seventeen carvings is. Is the whole name behind it? Yeah. Well, that's amazing, man. I appreciate what you're doing a lot. Uh, you know, it resonates very deeply within me. Uh, you know, I've know I've kind of tracked your progress ever since we got to do that. You know, I got to see you drop off the carving for the Farias family. Yeah. And then I got to tell their story thanks to you for mentioning them uh, to me. So that, that was powerful for me to get to see that. And, you know, when I've been in their house, I've seen that carving there. Um, or I saw that carving there when we first, you know, brought it in. Yeah. So it's really special and I know it means a lot to these families. So I appreciate you doing that, man. Anyways, just wanted to thank you, man, for coming on. Thanks for being a part of the project and podcast. And, uh, thanks for showing me all your incredible memorabilia. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. you got some incredible items of history there. So still trying to build it up. Yeah, I'm sure you will. Well, man, appreciate you having on. For all you listeners out there, thanks for listening. Thanks for tuning in. Uh, Don't forget to rate, subscribe, and review the show. And uh, don't forget, most of all, our legacies are the mission. This has been the Veterans Project Podcast with our founder, Tim Kay. Check us out at www.thevetsproject.com, on Instagram at The Veterans Project, Facebook, The Veterans Project, and Twitter at Project underscore Veteran. Thanks for listening, and don't forget, our legacies are the mission.